0: You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change podcast by the team at Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. This is a show about the innovators and entrepreneurs developing solutions to climate change.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change podcast. I'm Ross Kenyon. I'm the creative editor at Nori's Carbon Removal Marketplace. Today, I have with me an alumna, Sarah Thunberg, CEO and co-founder of Geospiza, and more recently, Colorado's COVID czar. What a sentence. I'm so Privileged to get to say such a thing. Welcome, Sarah.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, this show has been so long in the making. We tried to last year and we were gearing up for it. In fact, this outline that we're working off of was built for a year ago, but the pandemic happened and it prevented us from doing this Passover episode. So we're here now.
0: We're here now. And it's very exciting because I think a long gestated podcast is a good thing. I've reflected deeply on it in moments across the last year. And I think uh, we're better for it now.
1: You really had time to think about this over the last year?
0: Occasionally when you were like, Hey, are we going to do it? And I was like, yes. And then I'd be like, Oh, such good things to think about. And then it was all COVID all the time.
1: Yeah, I can imagine that. Uh, If you go back and listen to Sarah's original episode, we were talking about climate risk and how various organizations are working to visualize that, understand that risk, and uh, act on it in cases where they can. Is that an okay summary of, of your work?
0: Very, very good. It's the understanding that you need to take the changes to reduce the risk. And as we've seen over the last year, Uh, We live in a world of risk and a world we do very poorly at preparing for that risk.
1: I feel like you're getting at something specific. Is this potentially related to your pandemic work? Does this all flow together for you?
0: It does, actually, because I think that one of the deep learnings of my career and my work is that all of the things we think of as surprises or natural disasters or anything like this we know that they're likely to come we do the modeling about them we even do exercises to practice for them and yet when they happen we're like oh my gosh what are you talking about we had no idea how could we ever have known this was going to happen and we pretty much always know and so it's a it's a human problem and i think we'll talk in our episode about catastrophe in the form of the plagues and so even back in biblical times we had natural catastrophe. And they are, it turns out, not that different than what we're dealing with now. So that we're surprised is surprising to me.
1: Yeah. Abortive joke in there. I was thinking if, if a, a czar in biblical times would be a Caesar, right?
0: I think so, yeah.
1: I, that's, that's the joke I'm trying to make. I don't know the exact way to package it. We'll <laughs> just leave it at that, I think.
0: I like it. It's funny. Uh,
1: yeah. Okay. So before we get into the Passover story, how climate relates, What happened in this last year for you? What was it like working with Colorado state government and the pandemic response?
0: I will say that I'm not sure yet. I feel like it has been a year of incredible intensity and loss and the hardest work I've ever done in my life. And that the work was so intense and driven, that I feel like I lived in sort of state of adrenaline or fight or flight for nine months, and I'm not yet sure exactly. I'm not sure if I even like laid down the memories in my brain yet. It's still just sort of stewing around up there. But what I will say is it was a year of people coming together and doing their absolute best and just trying with everything, like. Lots of the work was um, very intellectual, very academic, very brainy. And yet you would see people's bodies on video calls just sort of like tense up and move forward. And you could see that my colleagues and the people who were all across the world working to solve this were had like every cell in their body in it. And it was an incredible thing to witness. Yeah. So... I'm not sure we should have another episode next year, maybe at this time, and we can reflect on all of this crazy. I'm not, I'm not quite there yet. Still, still just trying to take a breath.
1: Wow, it sounds pretty raw still then. Well, I'm sure we'll try to do another podcast in a year. And then three years later when we actually do it, then we can talk about it. Maybe that's enough time to reflect.
0: Yeah, I think that sounds like plenty.
1: I am trying to remember how exactly this came up in the first time you were on the show. I think we were just talking about the plagues of Exodus. You had recommended this book that I have here, which is Jonathan Safran Foer's, another podcast uh, alum, his New American Haggadah. I worked through it. It was the first one I've ever read and experienced, except for I went to a friend's Seder once. I guess that was the only other time I've referenced one of these. But um, yeah, I got a lot out of it. And apparently these are quite customizable. A lot of people customize their Passover Seder and to feature different elements of the story and different themes But I suppose before we get to the customizability, you could say, maybe we should just start with the bare bones. Like what is the story of Passover? What is a Seder? Let's set a nice uh, foundation for everyone.
0: Sure, absolutely. So Passover is one of the oldest Jewish holidays and it celebrates the Jews' exodus from slavery in Egypt. And it is a big momentous event in Jewish history and that the Jews were able to leave slavery and bondage in Egypt and go into the desert where they began to wander, which then led them to uh, entry into Israel. And enshrined in sort of all of this legend and myth are lots of details, but it also is the giving of the Ten Commandments comes in this place. This is the early, early days, not Genesis, not the beginning, but the story of Exodus. One of the things that's very wonderful and beautiful about the Passover story is that it is a holiday that is oriented around lots of traditions in the home and lots of storytelling. It's not a single night. It is a many-night event. And so there's a first-night or a second-night Seder. You can do it for up to eight nights, differing in, in traditions. And so it's one... In Judaism, there is a lot of, as with any faith tradition, there's a lot of food, there's a lot of ritual, but Passover to me is the one where it just is like magnified. And the Haggadah, the book you reference, is the story guide. It's the text that guides us through the, the meal. We have a meal and Passover, is where the prayers happen. So you sit at the table with your family and friends. And you process through the story and there's wine and specific foods. And so it's a it's a real feast of the senses of intellectualism and, and questioning. Um, it's a pretty wonderful holiday.
1: I think that's a great place to start. And if you're listening and you're not familiar, Seder is, as I understand it, is just the name of the actual celebration or the event itself of Passover? I- or- Is that the correct way to understand it?
0: So a Seder is a meal and it is a special meal in that there are prayers and storytelling and foods and wine. So it's the event you build them together to make Passover.
1: Okay, understood. I was familiar more with the pretty basic story of Exodus and how Passover is celebrated. But my understanding is that you can customize this a great deal. And people will write uh, Haggadahs that feature different themes they'll highlight. And so we seized upon an idea of a climate Haggadah or like a climate Seder. Have you been to many Seders or, or how much customizability do you feature in your celebration of Passover? Give us something on that.
0: Let me preface this by saying this is Judaism and Passover from my perspective. And with all things Judaism, as many people or Jews as there are, there are perspectives. And Judaism is a tradition of questioning and study. That is the best, that is the highest art, the, the holiest activity is to study all of the the Torah and the, the books and the teachings. So this is my perspective, you might have a different one. But the Haggadah is a classic Jewish text in that it is not static. It's uh, malleable, it's adjustable. My personal family Haggadah is like a mess. It's a manila folder that is a mess of stories. And every year we sort of discuss which ones we want to highlight. Are we going short? Are we going long? Are we doing lots of singing? Are we talking? What's the point? And then we'll sort of like adjust and then make copies and pass them out. And then others, uh, my grandparents used the modern Jewish reform Judaism Haggadah. It was a book, we did the whole thing. There was no messing around. You just did the one. And then there's other things, like I've been to a feminist seder, where it was all about the women of the Torah. And it was all about adjusting to the lens of of feminism. And it was very cool. So it's this idea that you can really reflect on what you need to in the moment. And I think one of the other things that's fascinating and, and unique is that, you do it in a meal. So you're also sharing food and you're drinking wine if that's your jam. The Haggadah calls for wine in particular places. So you can get a little tipsy and then the discussion gets exciting. So it's all just really, I, it's it's lovely.
1: It's lovely. Yeah, It's it struck me in my limited experience as being, well, the story of Exodus is a story of slavery and then the the jews uh, escaping and like as a nation leaving egypt and going their own way and they sort of get lost on the way right they're out in the desert after it for a while but so it's it's sort of like somber but it, it seems celebratory too at the same time is that tonally kind of correct
0: yes absolutely and there is redemption it's a story of redemption and freedom and that is something that is incredibly celebratory and i think in retrospect, especially, because I I don't know I am blessed to have never been a slave, but I don't imagine, I don't know what that experience would have been like for them. And it's also a story of incredible loss and trauma. The killing of the firstborn of each of the Egyptians, it's horror, right? That's trauma like we couldn't even contemplate. Um, and the plagues are terrible. As with life, I think, there's levity, there's celebration, there's grief and loss punctuated by redemption.
1: Passover itself, the the name is about the firstborn Egyptians being killed, right? Correct. And then the passing over is the Jews would put lamb's blood over their, their doorway, something yeah. like
0: that? So the message was to for the Jewish houses to mark their doorsteps and their gates with lamb's blood. And the angel of death would know to pass over those homes and instead killed the firstborn in each of the others. And that tradition has been pulled forward. And now the holiest prayers are tucked in a scroll and put in the mezuzah on the door. So it's a linkage to that, that now Jews' homes are always marked.
1: Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I've only seen the, I guess I've seen mezuzahs on people's doors before, but I learned about that from Curb Your Enthusiasm. I think much of my knowledge of Judaism is Larry David related. As it should be. As it should be a fair amount. But, oh, so I didn't, I didn't know there's a connection between the mezuzah though and Passover. That's, they're, and
0: they're linked. In, the Via Hafta, in a prayer, it calls for it. But I think that this is, to me, always has been the interlinkages that again, in in Jewish tradition, we study and we reference and we note. So it's very common in a book of Torah to have like one passage. And then it's like a whole three quarters of a page of like, Maimonides said this, and Hillel said that, and this person said the other thing. And so it's just like, wait, what? Who? So yeah, so it gets, they get muddied. Some prayers say, you know, reflect back.
1: I saw the scholar Jonathan Haidt say that argument and debate is a fundamentally Jewish cultural characteristic. It sounds like maybe you might agree with that scholarship debate, like working on your way through these texts and arguing about them. That seems, and also kind of Larry David too, right?
0: Indeed. And I think it comes back to some degree to the story of Passover, which is in Passover, are um, the first diaspora of many for the Jews. They had to leave everything. You couldn't take anything with you. There's the unleavened bread, the matzah, doesn't have time to rise, so they just take what they can. But the, the most portable, highest value thing in Jewish tradition is education. Nobody can take it away from you. And in your diaspora, you get to keep everything that's in your head. And so I think that that's, to me, has always been the root of the Jewish debate culture, the Jewish intellectualism, which is you can take all of our things. You can put us in a ghetto, you can enslave us, but like, you can't take what's in our heads.
1: (laughs) What what even is the correct way to understand that? You know, somber, sad, but I guess it's been turned to a a strong positive too at the same time. Yeah,
0: totally powerful.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's a power. It's like a nice subversion of what one might expect from that. That's, that's great. I think this is a really good baseline to, to move from. How exactly does one celebrate a Seder when you host it? Like, so in the Haggadah that I have, there's a whole bunch of chants, things you say together, exercises, there's sort of like thought experiments in there that you debate through and talk through. How do you do it and what, how does it work?
0: So in it is of my tradition. We have a, usually a big family Seder. And it's family of choice and family of birth, invite lots of people, extend out the table. And it begins with the washing of the hands in our tradition. And that is marking of specialness and ensuring that you're sort of prepared is how I experience it. So you wash your hands. And I think some traditions and sometimes at our house, you wash another's hands. Um, so you pass a bowl, it's sort of a ritual washing, not a real one. There's no soap. And you sort of hold your hands over the bowl and the person pours it over and then you pass it along. Yeah. So it begins that way, which to me is an interesting reflection in this context of of climate change, of a cleansing, of a beginning fresh. That's how it begins at our house.
1: A nice clean start. That's you have to get, get your house in order, get yourself taken care of. And then you're prepared to, to proceed or something like that, maybe. Exactly. Hmm. Okay. So then there's this ritual hand washing. Where do you go from there?
0: So one of the key traditions, and it's not a tradition that's called for um, and defined, is that you recline in Passover, that you have an extra pillow, You get your comfy chair, uh, you get your stretchy pants. My family, because you eat a ton, but you recline. And we'll come to the four questions. I think we'll talk about that. But one of the questions is why on this night do we recline? And there are lots of reasons why, but one of them, um, and the reason that I think about is about we can do this very hard work. We can have this big reflection and event and also be comfortable in doing it. And perhaps in being comfortable, we have more capacity to be thinking and we have more capacity to be reflective. In the climate lens, I think a lot about the idea of comfort and being able to be okay as a barrier to the changes we need to make in climate change, that they're There is this idea that like you have to be a vegetarian and you have to walk everywhere and you can never take an airplane trip again. And it's this very restrictive life if we're gonna have a a carbon neutral life or a carbon negative life or if we're gonna really make an impact. But I think the Jewish teaching of this reclining idea is that we can do very hard things and still have comfort. And maybe we can do harder things when we're comfortable, that if we accommodate ourselves and our base needs, maybe that gives us greater capacity. And so maybe if we pulled that forward and it wasn't this like all or nothing, you got to do everything, no plastic ever, forever, we'd get more people on the side of like minor changes I don't know. To me, it also comes back to this idea like you can have anything, but you can't have everything a little bit. And so like maybe we need to let people have a little bit and they'll do better work on the climate.
1: That's an interesting idea. Certainly, I'm trying to think of a good way to express it. But I imagine it's easier to care about something that's abstract that may affect your children or grandchildren to a far greater degree, this is something that is farther away. But if you're not struggling to get your basic needs met, you're able to zoom out a little bit. It's a little bit easier to think about things that are farther away. Of course, climate change isn't farther away for everyone, but at least for some people listening, it is sort of, at this point, still elective to think about, I think.
0: Oh, I think that's a really good framing. This idea too, of basic needs being met, Allows you to have space to worry about the other things, and that you can't if you're if you're struggling to eat, and all you can do is eat the meat, or the whatever. Uh, oh, yeah, I agree that that resonates with me deeply.
1: Oh, that's good. If all you get is free manna from heaven, and you really want quail, uh, what a poor. By the way, I love that part of Exodus, which if you're listening after after Egypt, the, the Jews are in the, in the desert and they get free bread that is tastes like it's been flavored with honey. And they're like, mm, we don't really like it that much. We'd like, uh, can you get any quail up there, God, that you can send down? Does that crack you up? I don't know. It seems funny to me. Is this intentionally funny?
0: It does crack me up. And I think there's so many things like that, which leads to the really good questions of like, why? What on earth? And and the multi-authorship of uh, Hebrew texts like there isn't a single author. There's so many. So I have never actually read any of the reflection, but I would love to see like, why quail and not honey? Like also, are there quail in the desert? Is it like a remnant? Is there a memory there? I have no idea, but I agree. It's, it's hilarious. And it also speaks to sort of, it's never good enough. Wandering the desert, you get free food, and you're like, but really, what I want is the quail. Come on, dude.
1: I grew up in Arizona and there's tons of quail there. So, me. quail in
0: the desert. There you go.
1: Quail in the desert. Yeah. No, I love that too. I think I got this from Amy Jill Levine and her work's come up on other podcasts and she's a Jewish scholar of the new Testament. So her perspectives are always uh, really interesting to read about, but she had something I learned. um, or just like trying to understand the humor and how much of the, the, the scripture is actually intended to be funny in her opinion. And so reading Exodus like that, I reread it for this, this podcast. And one thing that always gets me to you on the same front is Moses on Mount Sinai. He's up there for 40 days, you know, getting the tablets, getting the 10 commandments. And uh, he comes back and the, the Jews are already building a a golden calf. They're already like building an idol. And he's like, that's like the one rule guys is like, you can't, you know, you know, this doesn't work, right? This is how God gets really mad at you over and over again. 40 days, not even that long.
0: No, it's nothing. 40 days. And this idea too of like, I'm a planner, right? I'm an emergency manager. I'm like, how much planning did they have to do to be at at 40 days already have constructed it? They've been working on that for like since he went up there.
1: What had to, like, you had to like gather all the jewelry from the people, you had to melt it down, you had to make the cast. There's a whole series of operations. And yeah,
0: to agree that this was what they were going to spend their time on instead of like whatever else. Yeah, no.
1: I don't know. It's possible that this is not intended to be fun, but that's the whole, the whole, as I understand Hebrew scripture, it's this, there's an agreement with God, the the Jews break it in some way and they, they they fall away and then some prophet will scold them and then they'll sort of come back into God's good graces and they break it. And it's just sort of this like cycle of coming back to God and then losing the way and coming back. Is that kind of how you see it? Or am I imposing that?
0: No, I think that that's true. I think that's an accurate it's one of the many, but yes, of course. And I, isn't that like human? Isn't that the way of humans? Oh, it's all great. Thank you, thank you. Oh, we've gone a little sideways. Please forgive me. Oh, I need a guru. You're gonna help me get back. Oh, I'm back. Okay. Uh, I think it's like really common. I have. It's like exercise and meditation. You know. Oh yeah. It's universal. It just can't stay good forever.
1: Yeah, I think the overall shape of Hebrew scripture, if we accept that interpretation of it, is a sticky story because it, it rings true to us. So resolutions is a funny lens to see it in. You make these resolutions and then you don't really keep them. And then you, you, you keep trying and trying, but you fail.
0: I appreciate that there are even those prophets fail. That's one mm. of the things I love, that even the ones who do the best work aren't perfect. So there is no perfection, just continuing a, a self-improvement. You can always be better in Judaism.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you can always be better at Judaism. It's a great, a great line. Okay. Sorry. I let us down no, into, into tangents, hopefully related enough, but we, let's get back into celebrating Seder. What right. comes next after the, the reclining?
0: So I will admit it has been two years, though I've had many every year of my life. My theater last year was a little sketchy. I had COVID and it was my birthday. My birthday falls in Passover, which as a small child was a huge bummer because I didn't get a real cake. I got some sort of flourless nonsense. But in real life, it's nice now. Good big party. And then there's matzah which we're going to go a little tangent down food. Matzah is a sort of like French toast made with matzah. And this is a subject of huge division. Some people love it and think it's the greatest thing in the world. And I am pretty sure it's like eating paper with maple syrup on it. And ugh, I got no love for the matzo brae. And if people be like, but well, you can have matzo bra on your birthday. And I'd be like, blah. Anyway, so one of the things that is essential and quintessential of the Seder are the four questions. And the four questions are part of the Haggadah, and they are asked by the youngest child. And it is long-held tradition to learn the four questions as a small child, and it's a big thing when you can do it. If you can do it in Hebrew, even better. There's a song the questions are, why is this night different than all others? Um, so why do we recline? Why do we eat bitter herb? Why do we eat only flat bread? And there's a, another one maybe, look at this. I'm not the youngest, huh. so I never had to learn them. Anyway, the service is inclusive. It isn't just the adults speaking. It is about all people, including the youngest child, who has a very important role. And I think about this in the context of climate is really important because we talk in Passover about very difficult subjects, slavery, redemption, sadness. Sadness is an understatement. Unbelievable loss. And... We give that storytelling responsibility to children as well as adults. And I think in doing that, we are ensuring that the story is transmittable between generations, that it isn't too obtuse or intellectual, and that we get it to its simplest terms so that we cannot ever forget it. And that even the youngest knows it. And I think about this, and this comes up for me with Greta, Thunberg a lot, that we had Al Gore and we had all sorts of other prophets of climate change. And it wasn't until Greta came along and was able to give us this incredibly simple message that a lot of people heard and that a lot of people were able to internalize and also transmit the story of climate change. And so I really think deeply about this idea of ensuring our storytelling is appropriate for everybody and that everybody can then tell the story.
1: That's a a really clever connection with Greta's uh, rhetorical approach and just maybe her personality generally uh, speaking forcefully in very clear language. She also does have a bit of the sort of uh, like Hebrew scriptural uh, prophetic thing going for her too as social critic, right? Those prophets are railing against civilization and society as they see it. What's wrong with it? That seems very Greta-esque, no?
0: Yeah, I think uh, the thing that I find especially Greta-esque and in the tie to the four questions is taking this incredibly complex multifaceted story and being like, here's the four key things. And I'm just going to talk about them incredibly simply, but not as a criticism, but like simply and elegantly. We don't need, we don't need all the big words, all the big government talk, like here's what's happening. Here's what the consequences are. Here's how we can stop it. And we need to do something about it now. And I just think it's really beautiful. The idea of being able to have power with simple, language, the most power. And also not negating the idea that even the smallest person, the youngest, can make magnificent change.
1: Yeah, that's a really beautiful sentiment. And it's nice that it's included in here too, ritualistically. It's, it's always the, the youngest child who who says this?
0: It's always the youngest child. And so then when you go to adult satyrs, it's very funny to, for it to be like, Ooh, huh, ooh. There was a lot of... When I went to Cedars in college, it would be like, uh, when's your birthday? Because we were all really young, but in there was always a youngest.
1: That's good to know. Well, yeah, it looks like these questions to... You know, why is tonight different? Uh, why recline? Why the bitter herb? And why do we eat flatbread and matzah? What's, the bitter herb one stands out to me. Do, do you recall what that one might be about?
0: So the bitter herb is to remind us of the time of slavery, and that we also dip our bitter herb in the United States, or in I think most tradition, the bitter herb we eat is is parsley, and we dip it in salt water and eat it to remind us of the tears of the slaves and the bitterness of the work and being enslaved people. Mm. Hmm. Hmm.
1: So, so we're still on like this the somber part. Some of these thematically it feels like you're telling kids a sad story. You're explaining why the bitter herb, why you're eating flat bread, you're eating you're eating matzah because there wasn't time before fleeing Egypt. You had to make the bread, you didn't have time to let it leaven. That's yeah. my understanding. Is, is that right?
0: Didn't yeah. have time have to go. So you you baked it really fast so that you had something. And that something was a cracker.
1: Right. Okay. Interesting. Okay. So then after this, this happens, the kids, they get their answers, they're able to learn, they're able to... And by the way, if you're not able to explain your ideas in terms that you know, at a low level of understanding, it's, there's always an open question of how well you understand those ideas. I, th- I think it's an important exercise in general.
0: Yeah. In the startup world, there's always this idea of pitching to a third grader. If you um, can pitch to a third grader, and they can understand and then retell you what your business is. I think that might say something about venture capitalists more than third graders, but
1: okay. Throwing some Passover shade, I see. Very nice. Yeah. Okay. Um where do you go from the four questions? What happens next?
0: So again, this is there's sort of a meandering story and it's it's differential and, and different in different families. Um there's wine, there's all sorts of parts, but one of the things that I think Uh, And this might be a little bit out of order, but but thinking about Greta as a messenger leads me to the idea of Elijah. Mm. Elijah, the prophet, I believe he's a prophet, the idea of ghost, if we don't really have ghosts, but kind of like a ghost. So at Passover, we have a glass of wine for Elijah. And we also at a point in the service towards the end, open the door for Elijah. And Elijah is the prophet, I believe, who will arrive prior to the Messiah. So there is an idea in Judaism that if a human form will come first to a particular village, a coastal village in in Israel, and Elijah will appear first and sort of guide through. And we make room for Elijah, who's considered a stranger because we don't we don't know Elijah and we don't know when Elijah's going to come. So we make space for a stranger. And I think a lot about this in a lots of different ways. But this is this sort of weaving of a thread of connection and humans over time in the Passover message. That one, we make space for people we don't know. We traditionally in, in Passover, you are supposed to invite anybody who needs a home for Passover. Nobody should go without a meal. So we make space for the stranger. We also make space in, in our tradition, we think about Elijah as this ancestral ark, this connection where my grandparents, my great grandparents, the people all the way back to, you know, Europe and before that, wherever they came from, making space for Elijah, this this force that was gonna welcome the Messiah. And we still do it every year. And also I think it's a really beautiful thing that you pour him a glass of wine, gonna make it comfortable. Not only is it a seat, but there's also wine for Elijah. Mm-hmm.
1: I don't know how many times this happens in Hebrew scripture, but I feel it's got to be dozens of the admonition for you were once slaves in Egypt. And so it's a it's an exhortation that you need to extend, extend a helping hand to be charitable, to be kind. Is, is this related at all or, or not really?
0: I don't actually know if it is, but there is a good reflection there. I think that this idea of making space for the stranger, right? You were once slaves in Egypt, so you need to be more thoughtful and be more caring and have tzedakah or the giving of charity is really important. Yeah.
1: Hmm. You were also telling me about an interesting idea about uh, an idea of the Messiah within Jewish theology as um, maybe like, the people overall or the time overall, rather than a single person or something like that. Can you explain how that might work?
0: Yes, absolutely. So the times of Judaism, the, the, the being a Jew in history has been one often of incredible trauma. You have being a slave in Egypt, you have subsequent wars, you have the inquisition. And then obviously the Holocaust. And I learned it as post Holocaust theology, which is rather than expecting there to be a single human formed savior, a Messiah to come and save us all and usher us into a, the, the time of the messianic period of peace, of of all of that, that instead it's incumbent on all of us to create the messianic time, that we together can create the peace, can create the kindness. It's funny, all of the things that are coming up for me, I'm thinking of the opposite. So I'm thinking like ending poverty, ending inequity, ending violence, ending war. If we do that, that will make the time of the Messiah rather than than us sort of waiting for it or waiting for somebody to save us. We need to do the hard work to make it be. And I think about that in the context of climate, like nobody's going to save us from ourselves. We have to do the work. And perhaps the time of the Messiah, the first thing we need to do is, is to not have climate change and to stop it with the uh, greenhouse gas emissions. <laughs> I don't know. Just put it out there. Just a thought, huh? Surely will be part of it.
1: (laughs) Is this uh, one one term I've seen used frequently in these circles? Is tikkun olam? Is this all related in your mind?
0: Yes, it is. The idea of doing good and not just doing good, but there's an idea of righteous good in Judaism that it's. Not just doing good because you're supposed to, but the actually doing the work of change, the work of charity, the work of help, the work of um, dismantling broken systems that harm others. It's a righteous, it's righteous work. It's the work that we all should be doing. I'm not getting the right word, but there's an emphasis to it that's really Powerful.
1: Hmm. The shorthand, probably unfairly truncated version of it is Jewish social justice maybe is a way to think of it.
0: Yeah. And so it's not just about charity. I think there's this idea of charity, which is you give, you donate money, you donate food, you whatever. That's not enough in Judaism. You have to be socially just. You have to do more, ah, you're not allowed to stand by and let the bad thing happen. You actually have to be an active participant in dismantling or in, I think about this a lot in the terms of, in in Holocaust times, which was there's this idea of righteous Gentiles where those were the Gentiles who, the non-Jews who hid people, who undermined the Nazis who smuggled, who did other activities that were subversive, because it's not good enough to just not have participated. You have to actively do the right thing.
1: Do we even have a word in English that expresses that? I feel like you have to explain that idea.
0: No, I don't think we do, which is why we talk about tikkun olam, right? (laughs) Jews don't have Shorthand, we're like we're doing t- it's takuna lam, and you're like, what is takuna lam? You're like, it's justice, but it's righteous and it's powerful, and you don't have a choice. You just have to do it. It's not good, and you know, like it's a lot. There's a lot. You on the on the podcast can't see this, but like I have big hand movements about this. <laughs> yeah, there's
1: a lot of that going on.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So circling back to a couple of things we've already talked about. We also, in Judaism, make space for righteousness and comfort at Passover, right? We're talking about incredible, an incredible loss and an incredible story of, of redemption, and we do it reclining. And we also, when we think about climate change, it's not enough to just be, you have to be actively engaged in the justice component and for me i think that that i think a lot about my role in the world and climate and it looks like helping helping people who can't who don't have the space or the capacity to be making those changes to what you said about if your basic needs can't be met how can we expect you to make space for this very hard work so on the global scale we talk a lot about developing nations and what work they need to do. And I think there's this idea that, well, screw you, Western countries. You got to have all the benefits of a coal-inspired, coal-fueled development, like why can't we have that? But this idea of we all have to do the hard work and maybe we, some of us have to work harder to compensate for the others who can't, I don't know, that's a little half-baked. <laughs>
1: That's okay. Um, I think there's something there. I can see what you're driving at. We should talk some about the plagues, right? I think this is what everyone thinks about when they say, oh, they're doing a climate Passover episode, the plagues, rivers of blood, frogs, hail, climate climate change, natural disasters, and so on. Right? Yes.
0: yes. And to the point that I said earlier, one of the things I find absolutely fascinating is that The plagues of slavery in Egypt and Exodus remain the plagues that devastate huge swaths of our human population in this fair year.
1: Like they're not making new natural disasters for us. They're kind of the same.
0: No, they are the same. So I think uh, hail, especially hail, wildfire, that hail devastated crops in the time of slavery in Egypt for Jews in the same way it does right now. And that the catastrophic effects of climate change are the same that were the catastrophic effects that God rained down on the Egyptians to free the Jewish slaves. It's absolutely fascinating to me. And we have not innovated our way out of it. (laughs) We've made it worse, in fact.
1: We've made it worse, in fact, yeah. So you think we're going to see, I mean, that, that's sort of the, the most obvious link. I mean, there's many ways to, to spin the story of Exodus to be about, you know, slavery into freedom and that relate to the climate in a myriad of ways. But focusing on the plagues, that's, that strikes me as like the most one-to-one kind of comparison. Is that in your head too? Yeah.
0: Absolutely. I think this is how we got here in the beginning, which was natural hazards. They've been the same since the time of the plagues. They're still <laughs> the same. And climate change is just Maybe to me, sometimes I think about, is it, are the plagues coming full circle and they're so bad that we are in a time of global human catastrophe that we've magnified them with our greenhouse gas emissions? Or is it just a continuation? I think a lot about what is the lesson of the plagues in climate.
1: I'm very interested in this too. And I don't think I have a great interpretation of it because I find it, a genuine puzzle. And I'm sure a lot of ink has been spilled on this, but so, okay. If listening, if you're listening to this and you haven't cracked open Exodus alongside us, Moses will go to Pharaoh say, let my people go. And Pharaoh seems to be okay with it, but then there'll be a sentence that says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Why is God, it seems like Pharaoh would have let the Jews uh, leave Egypt, but the hardening of the heart, why? I don't get it.
0: I don't know. And I think this is one of the heavily debated passages, and it would be interesting to hear in comments or wherever what what people's theories are. But is it one of the ideas is that the Jews didn't deserve it enough yet? They hadn't done it enough? Or was it an idea that in order to not go after them and chase them down, which they do, the Egyptians do, leading to the parting of the Red Sea, that without the trauma of the plagues, would the Jews be able to make a break? Um, I also think that just the Old Testament Hebrew Bible God is a mean one, right? There might be funniness, but it is a vengeful God. It is a God that is punishing and harsh. And I think the last thing I'll say is that there's an idea that religion and the torah and the bible and all of the pieces are written to explain very difficult things right you don't have an answer there wasn't an answer so so religion is is a function of trying to answer all of these things and and in a time when it was probably very terrible there there was boils and pestilence and drought and darkness like there couldn't have been another explanation than god had to harden Pharaoh's heart to, to do it again. I don't know. What about you?
1: I don't know. It's, it's a hard one. It's, uh, I think it's related to what's typically called the odyssey. like the problem of evil sort of like, why does evil exist? Or why does God harden hearts? To, to a modern reader, Abraham going up Mount Moriah with Isaac to sacrifice him. And then at the last second being saved to modern reader, that doesn't seem, um, doesn't seem like such a great test of faith. The things that are done to the various Jebusites and Canaanites and, and Midianites—that really sort of seems like conquest and maybe genocide. Doesn't have a. It doesn't strike the modern reader as being like, "Hmm, this is an unobjectionable good." But um, yeah. Well, one thing I liked about reading, especially this Haggadah, is the revisionist take on some of these stories about, like God is hardening Pharaoh's heart, um, multiple times over, and the people who are suffering are regular Egyptians who are having their crops ruined or just being their first firstborn or being killed by the angel of death for, they're living in a dictatorship, right? The The Pharaoh is in charge. These people are not in a democracy. They have no control over their government probably. And yet they are the ones who are suffering. So right, the revisionist take here is how do you include mercy with Egyptians inside of the Passover story for, for Jews celebrating Passover? Is that part of your tradition too or am I reading too much into it?
0: No. It is not a part of my tradition, but that doesn't mean it's not a good one to have, mm. which is, I think, not just a dictatorship, but monarchy, surely. He was born. Oh yeah.
1: It's possible he was just a
0: monarch. That's fine. Oh no, not just. Oh, All of it. Like okay. worse a monarchical dictator? Is that the word? Worse. Sure. You get to be born the dictator. It's like North Korea. No, I think that it's a really wonderful and sad idea that that had to happen so that we could have a little empathy for the for the other people because i think there is an idea that oh they were slaves of egypt but of egyptians but it's not like those people the everyday Egyptians had the power to make a difference, though, in a Tikkun Olam reflection, it would be incumbent upon those everyday Egyptians to be fighting the power and <laughs> saving the Jews. So I don't know.
1: Okay, so what we just did, though, that's a part of Passover, right? Yes. So you're sort of reinterpreting the story and asking these questions.
0: Yes, right? that's the way. This is the tradition. And I think the reason we eat and the reason we drink and we are in comfort is because we want to ask these questions. And because the text isn't static, it's about questioning and about making space. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lead us to another place, which mm-hmm. is one of the seminal parts, most important parts of the Seder is that you say next year in Jerusalem, may we be together for Seder next year, but in Jerusalem. So this idea of the story of Exodus, they wandered and then they made it to Israel, though 40 years, interesting in that lifespan, the people who were enslaved never actually made it to Jerusalem. The idea of the wandering was that you truncate the memory and you have a new generation who starts fresh. And that's why it took so long because I don't know if you've ever been to the Sinai Peninsula. It's actually very small and the idea of wandering there for 40 years, bad directions, but it was that God wouldn't let them. And God didn't let Moses enter. Because there is the need of fresh of fresh starts. So to me though, in this time of coronavirus and and global pandemic, the next year in Jerusalem, I think last year especially resonated with a lot of people. And I think it will be the same this year because we're we're nowhere near the end, unfortunately, which is what is next year? What do we want for next year? Oh, next year in Jerusalem can mean so many things. It's being brought out of slavery. I imagine in the Holocaust, people thinking about next year, not in the camps, being free. I know that it is um, for hidden Jews in Spain, post-Inquisition, the idea of next year in Jerusalem was about being not actually in Jerusalem, but being able to be public in their celebration of Passover. And so I think that that is one of the most To me, it resonates the deep, deepest of what is our vision for next year. Passover will happen every year, and what do we want, and what do we mean by next year in Jerusalem?
1: I like that. There's something that's really poetic about that sentence too, right? Is it just you have like it sounds like almost like a cheers though, right? Next year in Jerusalem is that kind of how it takes place? Exactly. Given that Jews are, you know, throughout their history, so often a diasporic people that are not in their the traditional homeland, there's like a, a hint of like irony or melancholy I'm picking up on in there. Is that is that in there or am I just think there is?
0: No, I think it is absolutely there. That for a people who are historically pushed around geospatially and hidden and spread thin, the idea of having a place where we will all be next year. I think it also is so melancholy and also so much hope. One day we'll get there next year in Jerusalem. We're not there now, but we'll get there eventually. And maybe it'll be next year.
1: That's a beautiful sentiment. If someone is listening and they celebrate Passover and they want to incorporate some climate elements into their Seder this year, and we're going to release this the week of Passover, so they'll have time to, to prep for it where might you steer them? What might you tell them besides just all the great ideas you've had so far?
0: Yeah, I think uh, talking about what next year in Jerusalem in the climate context is, what does it mean? And also the pandemic context, what does it mean for next year? and, And in this idea of setting intentions and recognizing our humanness of falling down on them, what is your intention for where we'll be next year? Is that family? Is that Less plastic is it solar? I don't know what it is, but what is your climate intention and sort of what is your next year in Jerusalem look like? I think also because it's so wonderfully good in the story context and so illustrative, talking about the climate plagues and coming up with them for your family and and having the discussion even in the seder, you could do planning or you could just in the moment say like, what are the what are the 10 plagues of climate? What are they? I also think that to your point, having more empathy is a key feature of the the Passover story, as well as what we need in climate change. And so, so maybe finding the empathetic component. What about you?
1: I think those are all good points. I don't know, given that my experience is so limited, but I do like the malleability of the story. I, what does it look like perhaps for if we were to map this sort of freedom or slavery in Egypt into freedom in the Sinai and uh, Canaan beyond? What does that look like in a climate context? Is is it appropriate or does it make sense to say that it's like we're in a slavery or a suboptimal position now with regard to how we treat each other and or the climate and what does it mean to move to a, a just kind of tikkun along kind of world in the making that is waiting to be born um, yeah. but that's kind of related to your next year in jerusalem idea i think
0: yeah though i do like this idea too of kindness with righteousness of sort of what do we have to do to be sort of freed from the bondage of this what is this that we're in right now? And do we not like it enough that we're going to go asking to be freed? And do we have to ask or do you just sort of make it be? I don't know. Interesting. Who's our pharaoh?
1: But yeah. I don't know that I want to name a specific. First, I don't want to lay that on anyone necessarily. Yeah,
0: recommendation for your climate-centric Seder Ooh. folks out there have a discussion about who's the Pharaoh these days, who, what, it's probably not an individual, maybe there will be some, but also what entities and what structures, what systems, and how do you be righteous in your, your seeking of, of undoing and dismantling.
1: Well, maybe that's a good place then to leave it. It certainly is time to do the work. If you listen to the show, you're already, you're already one step, step on it. Yeah. So. I'm excited
0: yeah. to hear about people's climate seders. You even get to talk about a seder plate. This is my ask of people. Okay. <laughs> what is it? What is a seder plate? A seder plate is the ritual crockery or dish on which we place particular symbols that we reference through the meal. There is a lamb shank in the center representing the marking of the door. There is an egg that represents rebirth. There is the bitter herb, the salty water, the tears, maror, which is paste that represents the mortar of the bricks that the Jews laid while they were in slavery. It's made out of apples. And depending on where your family's from, you can be like where my family's from, where we make it with like a paste that's apples and walnuts and cinnamon and it's boring and dry. Or Sephardic Jews who add a ton of dried fruit and lemon and wine, it's Mm -hmm. the good of the Jewish. You have lots of different traditions to pull from. Anyway, the Seder plate is the the center visual of Passover and you place the foods around it and you sort of work your way through as as part of the Haggadah or the, the service. And there are new Jewish traditions about adding items to the Passover plate, the Seder plate, to reflect particular elements. And so if you were to to make an item on your Seder plate connected to, to climate change, what would it be? Or if you were to make space for a new item on your Passover plate, on your Seder plate about climate, what would it be? interesting
1: do you have any ideas for what you might do
0: no not yet i imagine there's like vegan seder plates there's surely people who have done work around this
1: yeah i'm sure if you looked up climate seder climate haggadah surely some resources must exist at this point we sort of independently came to this as like oh we should do this but uh we're probably not the only ones <laughs>
0: I can't imagine we're the only one. So I'm excited to hear about it.
1: Yeah. Well, feel free to write in. Um, we'll post this. This will come out the week before Passover begins or the week during which Passover begins. I don't know. Maybe maybe, maybe we'll post this with the hashtag or something. Sarah, or we'll find some way to <laughs> make this happen. Well, thanks for being here, Sarah.
0: Thanks for having me. And whatever it means to you next year in Jerusalem
1: next year in Jerusalem. Indeed. Well, thanks so much for listening. I hope you had a great time hanging out with Sarah and I talking about Passover and uh, we'll catch you next time.